Welcome to Wild and Exposed. Your number one adventure, nature, and outdoor photography podcast. Wild and Exposed is hosted by Michael Morrow, Ron Hayes, and Jason Lopez. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Wild and Exposed podcast. We've got myself, Ron Hayes, in Wyoming, in windy, spring snowy Wyoming, and Jason Loftus, who is normally in Utah, formerly Utah photographer Jason Loftus, and now you are where? <laughs> I'm actually, um, I've been sharing a little bit on my stories, but I'm actually in Texas this, this last couple of weeks. Um, and it's been funny because I'm I'm not known really as a photographer for my bird photography, you know, maybe a little bit of waterfowl here and there. But um, I've had quite a few people reaching out to me going, I knew there was a birder inside of you somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah, I've been down here playing around um, with some pretty cool bird destinations down here in Texas and had the opportunity to play with some spoonbills and egrets and snowies and tricolors and all kinds of, you know, um, whistling ducks and just some, a bunch of species I've never had the chance to photograph them. Um, so it's been, it's been fun. It's been a, I've gotten some pretty neat opportunities and uh, it's a pretty amazing place to, to do some spring migratory um, bird photography. So, and some gators and turtles and other stuff to boot, you know, so. I was going to say it's a good variety, a lot of biodiversity down there in those areas around the rookeries. It's just the stuff that you've sent me. You're having a good trip for just being able to catch a day or two on the weekend. Yep, it's been fun. Been well worth it. Been worth hauling the camera around. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And the reason I said formerly Utah is because we've got <laughs> formerly homeless photographer. <laughs> nice on segue. Tonight. <laughs> uh, Matthew Sullivan coming to us from Florida. How are you, sir? I am good. It is not windy. It is not snowy. It is not cold here. <laughs> so enjoying myself. How warm is it? Uh, today was like 86, 87, which is almost too warm for me. But Yeah, it's definitely too warm for me. <laughs> it's Florida, too, so it's to be expected. I can't wrap my head around 86 in March. Though. Yeah, it went from like the 60s to uh, the mid to high 80s in the span of like three days. So now it's essentially just summer, and <laughs> I don't think we're going to get any 70-degree days again for a while, but I have the ocean right there, so it's all good. Yeah, exactly. You're in a great birder destination too, aren't you, there in Florida? Do you do you ever get out and go chase some of the birds in that area this time of year? Uh, I actually, my parents are going to be here visiting next week, um, so we're going to go see the, and the burrowing owls should have their babies by now, um, and there's the one of the most well-known spots is maybe an hour from where we live right now. So we're going to go see the babies and obviously the adults are always around. Um, but the baby should just be emerging right now and be all fluffy and curious and cute. And last time we saw, ba I haven't seen the babies in a while, but usually the babies are really, really curious and they'll come right up to you and no, no fear, which I suppose isn't necessarily a good thing, but it's good for pictures. Um, and the parents yell at them if they get if they misbehave too much. So I think they're all right. Yeah, the burrowing up baby burrowing owls are incredible. I've had the opportunity to spend some time with them, and you're right; their little personalities, their curiosity is just 
I mean, you're 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 spending time photographing, but you're also spending half the time just laughing and enjoying yeah. the situation. You know, it's pretty amazing. Like when they like when they do that whole thing where they turn their head completely upside down. Yep, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's breeding season for all the waders right now. So whack the Wackatahatchee and Green K wetlands, which are pretty well known. Um, they're really easy bird photography spots. They're 20, 25 minutes away. So we'll go and wander around there sometimes, not even just to take pictures, just to see. And actually last time we were there, maybe a week or so ago, um, we saw an alligator eating a wood stork. So that was pretty interesting. Oh, my, my girlfriend's, uh, brother was here and all he wanted to see was an alligator and we hadn't seen one all week. And then we went to this place and he gets to see one tearing the wings off a wood stork and <laughs> swimming off with the body, which is pretty cool. But, uh, that was the only alligator we saw, but it was a good one. Matt, you do some bird photography, but you're not primarily a bird photographer when you're when you're doing things on your own. The reason we wanted to have you on, Jason and I started this conversation after last year when he returned from the Southwest photographing collared lizards. And we talked about we need to get a, a herpetologist on. And that's kind of what drew us to your work is you do a lot of the herp photography but you also do quite a bit of underwater. Herpetologist, it's a hard word to say, uh, and it's a generous description of, I'm not technically a herpetologist, but uh, I like herps. I'm an enthusiast, right? Yes, yes, you can say that. Obsession, passion, all those kind of words are applicable. Um, and yeah, I, you know, Jason had, I heard you guys talking about the, the collared lizards on a couple podcasts, and I think Michael maybe had mentioned having somebody on who does it more regularly. Um, and I was like, Hey, I do that. Um, so here we are and I'm glad it worked out. And obviously we'll get into stuff. that's not just reptile related, but. So what drew you to that? Those are typically critters that most people avoid. The rural parts of New Jersey, other than deer, we don't have a lot of mammals. So that's not really an option to get interested in. Um, and there's birds, but like when you're little, you can't, you don't really appreciate birds that much, I think, because you can't really get close to them. So you can't see them unless you're looking at a book. You can't see them with any detail. You can't hold them. You can't touch them. Um, whereas reptiles or amphibians, they're not that I'm condoning the handling of them, but, you know, I think it's one of the things that makes them appealing for, especially to young kids and a way to get them interested is that you, they're tactile. So you can give a kid a garter snake or a bullfrog or whatever it happens to be. Um, and they can feel it, they can touch it, they can see it up close, uh, which you can't do with an elk or a owl. Um, so my dad had me, we had a Creek at the end of our road. Uh, and my dad would just have me out. He, he would always rather have me outside. He's big into the outdoors, but he wasn't necessarily into reptiles or anything like that. Um, but, you know, he, he knew how to catch them. He knew how to find certain things. So we'd go to, go to our Creek and find toads and snapping turtles. And, uh, and I vividly remember the first time I ever saw a snapping turtle and he gave me a demonstration on why you don't mess with snapping turtles. And it was out of the water on the path and he gave it a stick and it snapped it right in half. Like it was nothing. And, uh, I, that, I was like four and I vividly remember it still. Um, so it definitely made a lasting impression, but yeah, he just, and then you can, but you can hold like painted turtles and water snakes and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's an easy way to get, um, 
especially when people are young, to get them interested in something like that is to let them experience it up close and see that they're not dangerous. I mean, some of them are dangerous, but they're not out to get you. They're not violent. They're not going to attack you. Um, and you can't, like I said, you can't do that with birds or mammals for the most part. And I think that's, and so I never got that up close experience with those kind of things. So that's probably why I was drawn to um, reptiles, amphibians first, and then underwater was a whole uh, other thing because I didn't really have access to underwater either, but I got to experience that pretty young. Um, and that's just underwater's my favorite. So it's hard to resist once you've been in the water. And we'll, we'll save that because that's kind of some of your latest work I, I want to get into. And, but the underwater stuff is fairly incredible. And that would be, if I lived in an area where that was possible, that would be my favorite too, but. Yeah. It's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to like, cause I see other people posting like my fr like friends who live here, they're posting snakes or they're posting birds. I'm like, ah, oh, I'd like to go do that. And then as soon as I have the free time, I inevitably find myself going right back into the water <laughs> uh, to look for inch long, weird looking fish or seahorses or whatever it is. So, mm. uh, it's my own fault that I haven't photographed snakes or birds in a while, but I'm not complaining because yeah, it's a, it's a good been, obsession to have being underwater. Yeah, exactly. You've been plenty active. Having the ocean that accessible, um, you know, you can squeeze in and dive after work on weekdays sometimes. You can obviously go on the weekends. Um, so, you know, if I live further inland, it would be harder. But any chance we get now, we go right to the water and try to find something cool and interesting. And usually you do. Um, but we'll get into that dive site near me, I guess, in a little bit. But yeah. I guess we, we'll start with the reptiles. <laughs> yeah, so we covered kind of how you got into at least being an enthusiast. How did you get into the photography end of things? When I was, I think, probably 10 was the first time. Well, my mom always had a camera when I was little, and I didn't know what I was doing with it, but I would just you know, shoot pictures of random things like cracks in the sidewalk or whatever I thought my five-year-old brain thought was interesting. Um, and then uh, when I, when we were 10, I got scuba certified. We went on a trip to Bonaire in the Caribbean, just like easy diving. It's, um, it's well known for um, shore diving and being, you know, good for everybody from beginners to advanced. Uh, and my parents gave me a little, like Kodak disposable um, and, all the pictures are garbage, all of them. <laughs> like I'd have the face of something cut off. I'd have the fins cut off. I wouldn't even know what I'd been trying to take a picture of. Um, but then one turtle, one hawksbill turtle picture, I have the whole turtle in the frame. It's as sharp as you can get for one of those little $10 disposable cameras. Um, and I was like, oh, that was so cool. So then I, they got me like a little three megapixel camera after that and then a five. Um, but you know, for the longest time, all I really wanted to do is I wanted to get a, the animal in the frame and not blurry was my only goal till for 15 years. Um, and then probably a couple years ago, I started to actually care about the photographic aspects beyond just getting a sharp animal. Um, so then I, then it just became full blown obsession. Um, trying to get, you know, the best pictures you possibly can of anything. And then, um, you know, one thing I realized is that, and this goes back to snakes too, is the 
if you show people an interesting image of, a, of an animal, they might become interested in it. So, you know, like we were talking about, a lot of people aren't necessarily into snakes or frogs or turtles or lizards or whatever it happens to be. Um, but if you can show them a picture of one that is compelling or in an artistic way or shows that they're not all, you know, blood sucking and out to get you, um, you know, they're, you can, you can change their opinions. Um, my two best friends are not, they're not reptile people. They've never been reptile people. Um, but you know, five or six years ago, I was going out and finding rattlesnakes regularly, uh, in New Jersey, which is where I'm from. Um, and I, I just send them pictures every time I'd be like, you guys got to come one day, you guys got to come one day. And they had no interest. Um, and then I got, I finally convinced one of them to come out with me one day. We found a rattlesnake actually like basking there. There's a, <laughs> there's a rookery site where they all gather to give birth. Um, and it used to be really well known for rattlesnakes, but it was also a, a party spot for the people who live down in that area, which, and partying down there is shotguns and, bonfires and all that kind of shit stuff sorry <laughs> um the uh so they there's a there used to be an old couch there and in it it, would, it would, was target practice essentially for everybody who go down there and party so there's you know shotgun shells through it bullet holes through it it's all torn to pieces um and we were, we walked in there one day and it was flipped up on its side propped up as a target and there was a little piece of cloth that was kind of draped down. And there was a timber rattlesnake probably three feet off the ground sitting in that almost like a, it had hammock. It was like in a hammock sitting off the ground basking. And she was pregnant. So she was, you know, cooking her little babies in there. Um, and I called my friend over and I was like, dude, this is how they are. Like they're relaxed. She never rattled. She never, she kind of eyeballed us a little bit. She gave a little tongue flick and she just sat there. And I was like, this is how they are. And he's like, that thing's so cool. Um, and then it was just, it snowballed. I got my other friend out there. He got to see them, um, you know, so it's, you know, little, little, little steps. One at a time, you can make one person interested and then a second person interested. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons that so much wildlife's in danger today is because a lot of people are ignorant of it, which isn't necessarily their fault. They just don't know about it. And especially, you know, reptiles for sure. The vast majority of people hear snake and they're just like, ew. Um, but if you get to show it to them, maybe you can have some sort of positive impact, um, on that person. And then maybe they have a positive impact on somebody else. And then the snakes benefit. And then we, as people who love the snakes or the frogs, we benefit because there's more of them out there to enjoy instead of having them be stomped on or cut their heads cut off or something like that. Sorry, it got dark, but yeah, it's it, the reality, it is reality. Of it for a lot of snakes in a lot of places, right. um, so, you know, that was one of the, that's one of the things I, I go for now too, with both underwater and reptiles is just try to, try to, try to make compelling pictures that'll get people interested or make people care about you know, something they wouldn't care about otherwise. Um, and I like to think I do a decent job of that, but uh, you can always get better. So that's what I'm trying to do. I think. Definitely, there's some compelling images. I think of uh, hognose snake that you photographed. That was just, it was beautiful. I didn't, I mean, we have the hognose snakes, the western hognose that we have here. They look just like a rattlesnake as far as coloration. Obviously, the head shape is different. And 
but their pattern is yeah. more reflective of a rattlesnake and they're not really all that interesting to look at <laughs> they look like a sagebrush <laughs> <laughs> yeah the uh and well so it's funny you mentioned hognoses because everybody in hognose range loves hognoses like if they exist where you live and you're into snakes they're nine out of ten people they're probably their favorite snake um because they're variable so the eastern hognose we get over here is they can it ranges pretty far out west i think they, they get into texas for sure they're in kansas i think they creep into colorado um but they're incredibly variable and each one has its own speed its own personality so you know some of them will puff up and get all macho when you walk up to them and they'll spread their hood which is another reason they get killed is because people think they're venomous or they're cobras and you know there's there's not a cobra species within four thousand miles of the closest hognose so um the uh and then some of them will just they have the people like them too because they like seeing them they'll roll over and play dead which is entertaining to watch but not necessarily the best for the snake but they'll flip over they'll stick their tongue out they'll, they'll drool they're, they'll kind of writhe around on the ground um and then if they get really stressed they'll uh poo themselves and will sometimes regurgitate whatever they ate last uh, and they really really stink when they do that so it you know it, it's for sure effective because as i know what they're doing as a photographer sometimes and i still don't want to deal with them <laughs> when they've done that i'm just like Ugh, it's just but uh yeah they're they're one of my favorite snakes and i it every, even people who don't like snakes they come out and they see the cute little upturned snout um and their ch chubby little bodies uh, and everybody enjoys hognoses especially because the way their their face is constructed they have a little smile right. too if you see them from head on um, which is which is pretty endearing. Um, so whenever somebody says a reptile can't be cute, just show them a baby hognose, and their minds will be changed pretty quickly. At least these guys that we have, the Western, they're really chill. They super relaxed. They don't get or don't act super stressed anyway. Yeah, the the Easterns are definitely the most theatric. Um, and one interesting thing about hognoses is they don't strike with their mouth open. So even if they strike, everything they do is fake. So when they fake, when they fake death, they're not dead. When they fake the hood, they're not venomous. When they strike, they're not, they don't open their mouth. So even if you get struck by one, they hit you with the nose, but they don't open their mouth when they do it. So the only times you'll see them with their mouth open is if they're like actively chewing something or sometimes they'll gape if they're, you know, real stressed. Um, but yeah, whenever they, <laughs> but it freaks you out because they're a fast striker and they hiss really loudly when they do it but they're not going to bite you because they almost always strike with their mouth closed. Um, and their, their fangs are towards back. They do have fangs because they eat toads and they, uh, they'll pop the because toads inflate when they get attacked and they'll use the fangs to pop the toads. Um, and, uh, so if to really get a hold of you, they'd have to get you pretty significantly. So they don't even bother opening their mouth to do it. Um, it's just another interesting little, hognose tid tidbit um uh but yeah the 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 westerns mexicans southerns um planes don't really i mean they can play dead they have a little hood um but they're a lot less variable and they're a lot their personalities diff don't differ as much as the easterns um so i feel privileged to have seen as many easterns as i have uh over the last few years um, and they are still my favorite snake at least in the u.s and you can see some examples of this on your instagram page which we will 
uh, get everybody pointed to later on. Yeah, I mean, they can go from black, like pitch, all pitch black melanistic to bright yellow, orange, red. I've seen a lavender looking one in Massachusetts that has a distinctly purplish hue to it. Um, and I'm colorblind, so it it probably might look a little bit bluer to me than most, but um, everybody who's seen the picture of that thing says it's lavender. So <laughs> I'll, tr- I'll trust their, ju- their judgment because I know my, my eyeballs don't work properly. So, so you know, it's interesting because you mentioned as a kid, you got introduced to the, some of these species, right? And um, I can just think back about when I was a kid and there was a fascination. I think I had a fascination with lizards and things. And I think the first lizard that I was introduced to um, besides like garter snakes and stuff like that was probably um, a horned toad lizard, right? And uh, those things were just amazing. I mean, they're they're not really afraid of you too much. You can catch them easy. Um, as a kid, when we were up in the mountains, we would we would you know catch one. It was our buddy while we're up there camping or whatever. Um, you know, we'd try to feed it and it would never eat anything we gave it. And then we before we left, it, you know, he he got to go back to whatever he was doing, right? He was he was. He went back to his habitat. And it's funny because that just carries on. I know my kids, when we go, you know, my youngest son, Hunter, he he would catch one every time we'd go up. And it was his buddy the whole time. And he always called him Tony, um, you know. And so he would catch a horned toad lizard called Tony. And anyways, it's just, you know, it's, it's good memories. It's good fun. They're a cool lizard. They get, you know, they're all kinds of different sizes. And, um, you know, we just... But that was a, you know, that's kind of, I would think back about some of my fascination. And then, you know, living in Utah, I've seen a few rattlesnakes through my life and um, never had any, un, you know, uncomfortable encounters with them or anything, you know, always stayed away from them as much as possible and left them alone. But um, but then, you know, going, you said you heard, you know, going and photographing the, the um, collared lizards down there um, with Mike and just, it just reignited for me that kind of interest and passion. And it's like, wow, these things are incredible. And I'd never seen a collared lizard in the wild before that moment. And then to photograph them and, and have such great, cool experiences with them. And that was, you know, I've done it two years now and I'm going to go again this year. I mean, I can't wait to go. I'm excited for this trip. And um, one of the things, I guess I'm getting to a question, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that's intrigued me about those, those collared lizards, for example, and it, now it's just like the doors open and I want to photograph all kinds of stuff. I actually want to photograph rattlesnakes and different kinds of snakes and other kinds of lizards. And I'm actually starting to do more research and trying to focus on maybe trips to do some more of that kind of stuff. Um, but what interests me about the collared lizards is there's a very specific area that fortunately Mike showed me. And it's probably, I'm just guessing, maybe a one-mile area that's where these lizards seem to be and there's a lot of them in this area and there's a lot of different species of lizards in this area um i think i probably saw five or six different species but when i was down there both times my wife and i when it would get super warm or whatever and or you know even when we got a little bored of doing that or whatever we'd go and searching looking for other lizards and we drove all kinds of roads out there and we didn't find any other areas where we were seeing lizards like that. You know, it's the same kind of terrain. It's the same kind of, um, you know, uh, cover and habitat, uh, the same elevation. 
I mean, I'm, you know, I'm trying to put together my mind, right? Okay, now I'm trying to figure out if I want to go find more collared lizards somewhere, you know, how do I go about doing that? What am I looking for? You know what I mean? And, and I, I'll be quite honest, I, I don't know. I can't, I haven't figured it out. And um, my point is, it seems like they're in a very specialized area. And I'm just curious if you have like any ideas of you know, why that is. Um, do we understand that? Is there a way to go find lizards to photograph? Um, you know, and then we can talk a little bit too about some of the issues of why maybe it's not so publicly, you know, available, but. Um, so first a shameless plug, if you want to do more, uh, lizard trips, um, I am running one to Madagascar in January, 2023 for Ooh. all the chameleons and nice. geckos. Um, so yeah, Very if you guys cool. want to do that, yeah. <laughs> it'll be that. Um, anyway, back yeah. to collared lizards. Uh, so, you know. I'm sure somebody out there might know specifically why the, that population is in that area. Um, and I think I've only seen like one or two collared lizards. Uh, admittedly, I haven't spent a ton of time looking for them, but um, you know, uh, certain species will have their, I mean, and certain species are territorial. So if you have a big male and he's got his group of females and that's his territory, they're all going to be right there. And there's no real reason for them to leave unless, you know, another male, takes over and then shifts the territory a little bit. But, um, you know, there's so many, and it, it might be this, I don't know, it might be the same for mammals or for birds, but, uh, you know, there's very specific microhabitat needs that a lot of those species need that that spot may have and two miles away might not have. And it could be moisture levels underground. It could be depth of burrows, like to be able to get down underground. It could be a specific food source. Um, you know, and it, it's it's funny and frustrating because, you know, there will be times when you go out on a day where you think it's, I'm going to nail it today with whatever species I'm looking for. I'm going to go to the right area. It's what I think are the perfect conditions. And you go out there and you don't see anything. And, you, there, and it makes no sense to you, but there must be something that they're picking up or that they're sensitive to that we aren't um, that just keeps them keeps them underground for a day or in this case keeps them out of a certain spot uh like there's you know they have such specific requirements it seems some species you know hognoses for example everyone says they have specific habitat needs you can find those things in literally everything um as long as there's reasonably sandy soil and a food source they're cool um, and in any weather conditions, you can find them when it's 50 degrees and raining, or you can find them when it's 110 degrees and bright and sunny. There's no, doesn't seem to be any like real rhyme or reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the, it could just be as simple as microhabitat changes for the collared lizards and something that, you know, we'll never be able to figure out. Um, but the best way to, I, I would say to, to keep finding them is to, you know, still look for those kind of habitats in other areas. And at some point there's gonna be another area that th has the same features as the one you go to now uh, that might produce collards or it could produce something else like a leopard lizard or yeah, that's the other thing is there could be a competing species in the surrounding areas that does better just around there and limits the collared mm. lizards to that area. Um, I think, I believe you have leopard lizards out there and leopard lizards can get to a similar size if not a little bit bigger and leopard lizards eat other lizards. So if they're in the surrounding areas, um, any 
collared lizard that wanders out of that immediate territory might get eaten. I'm just throwing ideas at the wall here. I don't know if any of them stick, but um, it could be something like that as well. But yeah, there's so many, and it doesn't just apply to reptiles, like underwater as well. There's so many little micro habitat differences that those animals pick up on that we're just completely ignorant to and may never know. Yeah. Um, No, that makes sense. Sorry. That's going to be... It'll be satisfying the next time you find another. You know, it will be because I've looked hard in that area and it's got <laughs> me wanting to go and look in other areas. So, but you know, it's funny. I think you hit on it and it might be just what you said because there are leopard lizards in that area. And I was just a little side note, yeah. super proud of myself because I did get a photo of a leopard lizard. And by the way, they're not easy to photograph. So. <laughs> no, they're not. None of those guys are. They're, they're like, the, yeah. as soon as you get close, they're gone. Um, your best shot is on like a cold day or if you can find one like the leopard lizards will sometimes just sleep at night out in the open the only one I've ever got seen any anywhere close was sleeping on the ground I didn't know what it was at the time and I just scooped it up and it bit the absolute crap out of me um, and I just had it hanging by my finger and it, they, you know, any lizard that bites onto you they don't let go so like until it wants to let go, it's not going to come off. And it doesn't matter how far you carry it or how much you tickle its belly until it feels like dropping <laughs> off. It's not going to drop off. And the leopard lizards have legitimate teeth. So it's understandable how they can take on other lizard species and be dominant. Um, but yeah, if they're alert, there's no right. chance of getting close to them. Um, but yeah, they're they're cool lizards. because If for no other reason, because of their cannibalism with other right lizard species that's all really interesting stuff i appreciate the the info on that yeah we got to get you out here yeah for sure i miss i missed i was saying to my girlfriend yesterday that i missed the west and trying to you know there's so many places you want to go you're like how do you fit all of them in in a reasonable amount of time and then you know she's she thinks much more logically than i do so she'll be like okay well you could do this and then down the road, you could do something else. I'm like, but I don't want to do I it. Feel your pain. I want to do it now. <laughs> she keeps me grounded because I'd be all over the place if not. I'd be, and I'd be, I'd have a lot less money than I already do. Okay, so that brings us, that brings us back to your Instagram name. <laughs> yeah. So where did that come from? Formerly homeless photographer. I moved out to California for a job uh, in 2017. And my options were to live in a, in an actual apartment and have no, still have no money because living, everything in California is incredibly expensive, or I could live out of my car and get to do some traveling and go some places that I for sure would not have been able to go otherwise. Um, and that, for me, that was an easy choice. I was like, okay, I'd rather go travel right now. I don't need a reasonable place to sleep. Um, so I just lived out of my car. It was not the most fun, <laughs> but it was, it definitely allowed me to do some things that I wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. I got to go see the Great Whites for the first time. I got to go to Alaska, um, Vancouver, uh, a couple other places as well um, that I still don't know if I would have. Well, you know, Alaska, for sure, I wouldn't have made it back to yet because I still haven't been back. Um, and I wouldn't have, if it hadn't been for work, I wouldn't have gotten to do the Great Whites again either. So um, I was, 
you know, especially on those days when it's like 130 in LA, trying to sleep on those nights in a car was not the best. So once in a while I'd cave and get a hotel room um, just to enjoy some AC and, and, act, and a, a non-gym shower. Uh, but, you know, for the, for the most part, I, I don't regret doing it. Um, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> I would for sure not do it again. Yeah. Um, but the, uh, the experience was interesting and it makes for an, a good story. Um, and you know, it was the, the, I like to differentiate myself from the actual homeless people. Cause I at least had something to sleep in. And one night I had, I remember I had to share my parking lot with a homeless couple who spent the whole week long dur- duration. They were there just all night screaming at each other. And it was, so I got, so I, I, and I, that was my parking lot. Like that was my territory and they were moving into my territory and I guess they were too loud and rambunctious. And after a week, the cops came and kicked them out, but I was, I was able to stay. And I don't know if they just, if they actually realized anybody was in my car ever, but um, either way, it was, that was my parking lot for two years. And that's where I, that's where I lived. Um, and my commute was easy because it was the parking lot of my work. So I didn't have to go very far. But nice. I'm definitely not doing that again. Definitely not doing that again. No, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, I've talked to several people that have done it and lived out of their car. Same thing, get a gym membership and, you know, Isaac Spots. Yep. We had Isaac on and he was telling us that. Mm. And I didn't realize that, that that's what he does in the summertime. But while it provides a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of risk as well. And probably yeah. a lack yeah. of comfort. Yeah. I mean, I got, I got used to sleeping in a driver's seat. Um, but if it was, if it was like any time other than December and January, the nights are all 80 plus in SoCal. So it's just brutal trying to sleep. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, eventually I got used to it and, it never got enjoyable, but it got tolerable. I want to get to your Vancouver trip. Yeah, 10 out of 10 would not recommend. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I want to get to your Vancouver trip because that's actually the first time that I heard you speak. You were on Ray Hennessy's podcast, I believe, mm. uh, the Wildlife Photo Chat. Yeah. But first, I want to talk about, you know, we've we've talked about some of these reptiles and going out and photographing them, but there is some inherent risk. And not that there isn't with bears or elk or moose, but the proximity increases that risk a little bit because you've got to get a little bit closer to photograph these guys. And you can get closer. But talking about the risk, how do you mitigate that in the field? Usually the things you have to worry about are the viper. Well, so in the U.S. or in Central America, the only elapids we have, which are like the small rear fanged um, venomous snakes are uh, coral snakes and you, they're brightly colored. You usually see them coming. Um, so it's not one you need to worry about. And you, and you can, those guys, you can get close and photograph because they don't, they don't strike very far. Um, and they're, they don't seem to be very accurate when they do. Um, but they're spastic. So they're kind of a pain in the ass to photograph. So yeah, I, I've seen a few and I just don't bother. Um, the rattlesnakes, copperheads and then when you get into central america you have some of the arboreal vipers and then like fertile ants and all that kind of stuff um 
for the most part, venomous snakes are relatively relaxed. Um, I mean, you always have one of those, and usually you'll know right away what their temperament is, because if you walk up on one and it's striking at you from 20 feet away, it's probably one you shouldn't bother with. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not going to be a productive shoot and you might get yourself in trouble. Um, but for the most part, you know, they'll, they, that's one of the things I like about vipers is they just sit. They're usually in good poses naturally because they, they sit coiled up or they sit ambushed on something. Um, but you know, you still have to, and everyone says, you know, you can tell their behavior and that's true for a lot of it. Like you can kind of gauge if a, you know, a snake's antsy or anxious, but sometimes they'll just, they can just go off and you, you don't see it coming because they don't need to be like, vipers don't need to be coiled to strike. Um, and I've had some uncomfortable <laughs> encounters where I, they came at, they, they struck out of nowhere because I was probably too close. Um, and I hadn't been paying attention. Um, and now I pay, I don't, if I photograph a viper now, I don't get anywhere near the strike range, um, because you just never know and it's not worth it. Um, and you know, certain, and there's certain species that are a bit more aggressive, not aggressive, aggressive is the wrong word. Uh, they're a bit more quick to react like the fertilance in tropical in the tropical Americas. Um, you know, those can be a legitimate problem because they're, they stand their ground um, and they're relatively quick to strike. Uh, and, you know, so most vipers, if you come across them in the path, they're going to, you know, they're going to coil up and try to sit there or they're going to, you know, scoot away from you. Um, I've had a couple of times where the, where you'll see a fertile ant sitting in the, tra- sitting in the path and it just sits there and looks at you. And it's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm going to stand here and hope you go away. Cause I'm not going to walk yeah. past you, but I also don't want to turn around cause I've come all this way. But, um, you know, you just have to be, you have to be a lot of, it's just common sense and not being careless. Um, and the, usually the times people get in trouble is if they were careless or if they were doing something dumb. Um, the one poor incident I've had with a rattlesnake, I, I was careless. I didn't see it. And I put my hand down um, and it happened to be in the wrong spot. Um, so I, you know, it's a valuable and painful lesson to learn. Uh, and now I'm significantly more careful um, in the field. And I always watch where I put my hands. Um, and if I'm with anybody, I watch where they put their hands. It's because, you know, they're, uh, you know, vipers rely a lot on camouflage so you, and they often will be, if there's one, there's oftentimes another one. Um, so one of the first things I'll do now, if I see any sort of viper rattlesnake or whatever, especially rattlesnakes is check for another one in the immediate vicinity. Um, because if the, like I said, if there's one, there's often more. And that's how I got in trouble. Um, I was photographing one. I didn't look around and like I said, I put my hand down and it was not in the right spot. Um, so it's just some, some dumb, careless thing like that can get you in trouble, but it was a useful lesson. Um, and you know, some people build like shield, like they'll build plexiglass shields around their lenses and stuff when they go photograph, uh, venomous snakes, which I think is an interesting and probably wise idea. Um, because even if you're shooting them with a longer lens, you know, a, a big viper can strike from a pretty, pretty long way away. But if you have a shield built up, you know, you're protecting yourself and you can arguably get more interesting pictures if you're shooting wide angle or something like that mm-hmm. get the camera right up to them um and you know 99 percent of 
kind of mistakes are going to be fine. You know, certain uh, elapids like the, you know, the cobras or some of those things in Africa, I wouldn't, I, they, they scare me. I'm, I'd like to see them, but I don't want to be anywhere near them. Um, but most vipers are going to be relatively relaxed, but that still doesn't mean you take chances with them because it yeah. might not go well. Um, and you know, the, the, you compared it to bears, like bears, you'd probably hear, see them coming if they're going to come at you. And then, you know, you're in trouble, <laughs> the, something like a rattlesnake, you, that can get you out of nowhere without you really realizing it. So, um, you know, you just have to be mostly just common sense in the field and don't yeah, be careless. A bear's a lot right. larger, so you can photograph it from a distance and maintain that That's true. safety That's true. area. A snake you couldn't but photograph I, from 100 I, uh, yards away. No, that's true. But I do recommend people when they want to, if they specifically ask about photographing venomous things, I recommend a 300 millimeter to them now. Um, Cause you can, a lot of those 300s focus pretty close. So unless you're doing super macro stuff, they're good enough for most vipers, um, at least the bigger ones, which you couldn't really get close to anyway, or you wouldn't want to get close to. Um, so, you know, 300 will keep you out of strike range, keep the snake safe. And you can get some cool pictures with that focal length of, um, you know, and, and you're less likely to, to disturb them if they're just going about their daily business, if they're coiled up on something or waiting for prey. If you're shooting them with a 300, you're not going to be right up in their personal space and they might be more relaxed and you might get to see something cool that you wouldn't necessarily get to see otherwise if you're right up, right up in their grill. Um, and that's not to say I don't get up in their faces. Uh, I for sure shoot them with a macro lens. I don't, I don't own a 300. Um, you just have to be, you have to pick and choose which ones you're going to do that with. Um, and it's never worth, as with any subject, it's never worth stressing them out if they're not in a good spot or, um, yeah, I'd imagine for with shooting snakes and stuff, it doesn't help to be, have a slow friend with you, you know, like with bears. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 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 because right. can't <laughs> outrunning them doesn't matter at that point. Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> Hey, real quick too, yeah, yeah. before we go off of the herps and stuff, I I kind of have another question for you if it's okay, Ron. I don't know if <clears throat> I thought you were gonna say go off the deep end. Well, no pun intended. That would be a good transition. We gotta work on those transitions. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> so when I was researching some stuff too, trying to find some other places to shoot lizards, it was really interesting to me. I found out through through my hunting life and through photography that in general, you know, a lot of people keep their favorite spots and their things close to the vest. And it was, and I didn't expect that for whatever reason with the, with the herping community or with the snakes and lizards and stuff, right? I kind of figured it'd be pretty open. People would be pretty, you know, willing to share. And I found out real quick that it's as much that way, if not more insane as far as the secrecy and the idea of sharing information. Um, and I know it's probably like anything. you got to earn, earn some people's trust and maybe share some information, you know, give a little, take a little. Um, and, you know, you earn that over time, and I understand that. But I just was shocked. And maybe talk a little bit about that and why that is, you think. And um, I know I get it from the standpoint of it's a good spot. But I think there's more to it than just that. I think there's some other issues potentially that are – kind of lingering out there that keep people from sharing some of that information. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's, I, I would compare it in terms of like birds or mammals. I would compare it to like 
uh, owl spots in terms of how people behave with their, like their honey hole reptile spots. And, you know, certain places like the Everglades, everybody knows the Everglades, everybody knows main road there is great for reptiles. Cool. It's protected. So nobody has to worry about it anyway. Unfortunately, because so much traffic stuff gets killed there by the hundreds daily, but that's a separate issue. Um, But, you know, the arguably one of the biggest things with uh, reptiles is the fact that most of them are easy to catch. um, And a lot of them are easy to keep in captivity and people, so people poach them. Um, It's an, and it's not just an issue in the States. It's an issue pretty much everywhere. I would say that, you know, that um, the States and maybe parts of Africa uh, are the most aware of it. Um, So, you know, South Africa, Namibia, um, and then here, maybe some in Mexico, um, the people can be more secretive because poaching is such a big issue. Or even if it's not poaching, if people, if a spot gets out, that was great for milk snakes, for example. Um, you know, there, if you don't put, if you flip going out there and somebody flips a whole hillside worth of rocks and doesn't put any of them back, you're not going to find milk snakes there anymore, or at least not for a very long time, because now you've, it's, if you're going to put, lift something up, put it back because now you've just essentially destroyed. That's like pulling the roof off somebody's house and then not giving them the roof back. Um, so it's, you know, they, they could live there, but they're not going to. Um, so it's, you know, there's a bunch of different issues with why people are secretive about their spots and it's poaching, it's habits, habitat destruction. Um, and I, you know, it's, it happens with underwater stuff too, you know, like the, especially here in Florida, there's lots of, well-known spots for manatees, for example, um, that are, uh, you know, mauled by tourists during the season. Um, and it's not okay, but at least, but everybody goes to those spots. They have, you know, people monitoring it so that in theory, the manatees are treated okay. Um, but then, you know, you have the other spots that'll, that, that, the hordes don't know about and then the issue becomes like this year one of the one of the really really good spots was blasted out on facebook and all of a sudden everybody's there um and i don't know if it's necessarily going to be detrimental to you know the manatees but i've seen people how people behave around them a lot of the time um and they don't treat them well you know certain manatees will seek out attention and they'll come up to you and they'll they'll hug you and they'll kind of stick their face in your face and look for scratches and things like that. Um, which is cool. Then you have one that's seeking out your attention, but then there's the vast majority of them that don't want anything to do with people, but people are chasing them around. They're pulling their tail. They're pulling their fins. They're chasing after them. They're not paying attention to kicking them in the head. Um, so, I mean, you know, the, it's not just, you know, I know we were talking about reptiles and here I am rambling about other stuff, but, um, you know, it's an issue with, I think, all, you know, uh, sensitive wildlife, anything that you can get in proximity to, or you can pick up or you can take, uh, I think it can be an issue with that because, um, you know, even if people have mean, well, there's the, there's also the, like the ignorance factor and they might just not know what they're doing and go and destroy, uh, like a hillside or they can go and destroy a spring, um, or they can go and collect a whole population of animals that now nobody can find because they're gone. Um, 
and I mentioned, you know, South Africa and Namibia, there's dwarf adders there, which are among my favorite snakes. And there's a bunch of different species and they're only found in that Southern part of Africa. Um, but they fetch huge amounts on like the black markets, especially in Europe. Um, so it's easy for somebody to hop down, hop down to South Africa, collect a bunch and go make a killing selling them. Um, and, you know, they're become, a lot of those species are becoming harder to find. And it's not just poaching, it's habitat loss too. But, you know, the poaching seems to be a big issue. And if you talk to guides in, in those places, the thing that they always mention is people poaching them. Um, like they're, these things are getting harder to find and we're, they're very secretive about their spots. Um, and even before I went to Namibia, I, we kind of got vetted to make sure we weren't, you know, coming to, to, you know, sneak spots and then go back and take snakes or take snakes while we were there. Um, you know, so it's, and there's, and there's spots like that here in the U S as well, that people keep very, very well, very well guarded secrets. Um, and it, the states are kind of weird because each state has its own rules about what you can or can't do with um, species. So, you know, at, you know, like uh, Arizona, any native species there, you can collect freely with the exception of the montane rattlesnakes and Gila monsters. Everything else is fair game. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not a fan of collecting, but if you're going to do it, they can go do it there. And it's, it's legal. Whereas if you go to New Jersey and you're collecting timber rattlesnakes or box turtles, that's a, everything in New Jersey is illegal. So you can't do any of that. And you can get in huge trouble even for like assisting a rattlesnake off the road. Um, so, I mean, I, we're, <laughs> I went on a complete tangent here off your, off your initial question, but it all kind of ties together. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'll, so the, the, it's, I'm not surprised you had that you came across that in your research on, on new spots. Um, the, you know, the best way to do it is to have somebody close to who knows what they're doing and then, you know, you know, learn from them, go find your own spots, get some, um, some of the more well-known spots, and then you can you know, slowly ingratiate yourself and get, get other stuff as well. Um, so, you know, there's some, there's some people that I'm, I've known forever, so we'll share everything. And then there's some people who ask me for stuff all the time. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know who you are. So you give them like, you give them information. You're like, you can go try this or go try this in this area, but you're not going to give them like the, the coordinates to whatever little spot that happens to be. Um, and, or I'll get, or you can give them, you know, the well-known spot that everybody knows about. You can find it online in two seconds. If you looked, um, and usually that, that's a, uh, good way to get the the people you don't really know out out of asking you that question, and I'm sure you guys get it all the time with you know certain locations or certain subjects. Um, but then it, I've even noticed it happening here with uh, some of the stuff underwater. Is you know I've I've learned to not post things right after finding them because then you get blown up by ten people, and three of them you might be cool with, and the rest of me like I don't I don't. You know, mm -hmm. I, we've never spoken before, so why would I all of a sudden, you know, tell you exactly where I found that frogfish or that seahorse or whatever it is? Um, you know, and this, the dive site here especially is incredibly popular, so hundreds of people dive it. I'm amazed stuff isn't killed in, all the time because of all the, the traffic of both, you know, divers and, and beachgoers. Um, but, I, yeah, I've just stopped posting things right away. I'll save it for a couple of weeks or a month or whatever. 
and then post it later. And then if somebody asks me, like, oh, I don't know, I saw that forever ago. It's probably not there anymore, um, which is, you know, a bit de bit deceiving, but it is what it is. You know, you have to do it at some times because otherwise, you know, those animals either get harassed to death or they'll get harassed to move to a new new area, uh, which in that in that case, it's both stressful for the animal and selfish for me. It's like, well, now I can't go and see it again because it's gone. Um, but yeah, I mean, the ethics of wildlife, wildlife and wildlife photography, we could have a whole oh, yeah. three hour conversation on. Yeah. Um, but well, and I think, Matthew, that's a great answer. I appreciate that. And I think really for me, what I've learned over the years, and it's not, it doesn't matter what it is. I think, and it doesn't matter if it's hunting spot, it doesn't matter if it's photography, it doesn't matter if it's big game, birds, reptiles, whatever. I really think a lot of it comes down to if a person sees that you're sincere and that you're willing to do some work um, and you're not just asking for freebies all the time, you know, um, I think people are willing to share with you. And I guess this is more a message for, you know, other folks that are out there interested in this stuff is, believe me, I, I don't expect to, I mean, Mike gave me a freebie. I mean, that's just, he's a good friend. He helped me out and got me kind of the, the taste of it. It got me addicted and I'm all about, like you said, I'm all about finding that next location on my own. I really am because I think it would just be that much more rewarding. Um, but I think if for people that are out there wanting to, you know, maybe do some of that, no matter what it is, you do your research, do your homework, try to learn about the etiquette of the, the species that you're involved with because it does matter, um, you know, and, and, and eth ethics and etiquette of the species you're photographing or you're looking for. So you're not doing things like turning rocks over and leaving them, not knowing any better. You know what I mean? And, you know, just not doing things that would destroy habitat and things like that that could affect the, the animals that you're looking for. Um, and then, you know, if people see you're willing to, to work hard at it and try, you're not just asking for freebies. Like I said, I think, you know, you'll find people that are willing to help. They may not give you the GPS coordinates, right? But they might lead you in the right direction to kind of shorten your, your search or your learning curve a little bit. So... Anyways, I, that's a great answer, and I think it applies to no matter, you know, whatever species you're looking for. Some people, like I, I know a couple, a lot of herpers who just, they work their asses off. And eventually, and they'll, they'll hammer it until they finally figured it out. And then they can go and apply it everywhere, and they're good. And, I, you know, those, what, regardless of whether it's reptiles or some species underwater or a bird, you know, those you have to admire that because they've they've taken no help and they've just gone out and they did it themselves and they they just they worked and it has it's the most satisfying feeling when you can make that happen um like even even for finding stuff underwater here you know like there's there's a relatively big community of like the the serious photographers who will share like the us tell you where a subject is or something like that and that's cool you get to go see it you get to go photograph it but like it's not the same as going and finding one yourself. Um, and there's, you know, if, I understand that if you're going on a, on a trip somewhere and you only have a limited amount of time, like, okay, I need to see this in this amount of time. I, I'm going to take any help I can get. Cool. All about it. Uh, but if you're, like, if you live somewhere and you have all the time in the world, it's so much more satisfying if you just go out and do it yourself and it might suck forever. But then when you finally figure it out, you're like, yes, that's the, that feeling of satisfaction is so much greater than it would be otherwise. Um, Absolutely. 
and you know. Yeah, we we had a guest on, and I think you probably know who she is, Lydia. Um, I know who Lighty she is. Bug yeah. on uh, Instagram, but when she was on, she actually said something. It was really actually funny, and but it's very true. And she gets asked all the time, "How do you go out and find all these owls?" You know, and her answer was literally, "I I go out and I look." You know, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. Yeah. And she does. That's what she does all the time. She goes out and she looks. And there's something to be said for that, right? I mean, any of us that are, to your point, you you hit the nail on the head. You're shortening up a trip. You're going somewhere you've never been before. You're trying to maximize your time, whatever. Um, but really, it is more beneficial and more rewarding if you are in an area where you know the species are available. And, you you know, you go and spend the time and look for it and find it yourself. The whole experience is, is, um, is more rewarding, so... Yeah, exactly. And, you know, not that I won't take certain, like, gimmies if somebody's hands them to me, but for sure more rewarding if you go do it yourself and you can find something on your own. Um, (laughs) 10 out of 10, I would recommend that. Not living out of your car. Way to bring that back. But going to to find stuff on your own, I recommend. (laughs) So now, Ron, let's go off the deep end. So I did want to touch on, I, well, first of all, I want to hear about your favorite outdoor experience. And I think it has to do with this wall that I heard you describe diving. Uh, I think it was in British Columbia. I don't think it was Alaska. I'm pretty sure it was British Columbia. No, Alaska, actually, the diving's not great, um, which is odd because you would think it's not exceptionally far from British Columbia. It would be pretty similar, but it's not. Um, British Columbia, though, is arguably my favorite place I've ever been. Um, the I like the rainforest. I like the mountains. I like the, the I like cold water diving. I love cold water diving. Um, so I think you're talking about when I was on Ray's podcast, when he, you know, back in the day mm-hmm. when they would limit a guest to 11 minutes of speaking time. Um, the uh, uh, Yeah, I... Was going to. Um, I've been twice now to God's Pocket Resort, which is off northern Vancouver, um, and it's the whole area is all islets and islands, uh, and it's really, really um, current. Like the the area is current heavy, so the tides are really big. The currents rip when they go through, uh, but what that means is it brings a ton of nutrients into the area. So every inch of everything is alive so like there's and that specific wall you're talking about it's called uh browning wall uh and it drops from like eight feet or something like that all the way down to uh, 600 or 700 or something um and literally every inch of it is covered with something alive uh, there's nowhere to put a finger and it's fantastic um and it's also famous for giant pacific octopus which after six trips to the pacific northwest continue to elude me um so that's one thing I need to I need to settle a score with at some point. But um, it's 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 fascinating to because even even places in the tropics, you look around and there's bare patches of sand or there's you know bare rocks here and there under the water. But that particular area, there's none of that. There's either kelp or there's anemones or there's and there's fish or there's sponges or tunicates or it's ridiculous. And it's people think of like the tropics as the, as the most colorful places, but those, those temperate water reefs and walls are, you know, they're every shade of pink and orange and yellow and red and white. Uh, blue is not a common color up there, but uh, everything else is there in abundance. 
Um, and I, the, <laughs> the first time I ever dove there, I, it was maybe 10, 10, 15 feet of this. So it wasn't very good. Um, but I was in the wall and all of a sudden shadow passes over top and it was way too big to be the boat. And I was too deep for it to be the boat. I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. And I looked up and there was like this ghostly silhouette of a humpback swimming right over top of me. And you couldn't see any detail, but it was, and it was honestly kind of spooky because it's all dark water. And then there's just this monster shadow going right over the top. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really, really cool. Um, and then if we're talking my favorite ever wildlife experience, I'm going to cheat and give you two. Um, one of them has to do with humpbacks It's in Norway. And we were there for the orcas and the humpbacks chasing the herring migration. And we hadn't had any luck uh, for like the first three days. Um, and then eventually we ended up in this, in a bay and, uh, orcas had corralled a, a huge bait ball. But I mean, when I say huge bait ball, it's like half a mile wide. So like they're, you can't just hop in and see the whole bait ball and see all the whales. Um, so we're sitting in the skiff and a group of humpbacks lunge feeds, which is when they come like half out of the water and scoop up as many fish as they can in one, one mouthful. Um, they came up like 50, maybe a hundred yards away. And I said to everyone on the, on the skiff, I was like, I wonder what it's like to be in the middle of that. And it, it just, it was just like a passing thought. It came out of my mouth. Everybody probably ignored it except my dad. He's like, don't end up in the middle of that. Um, <laughs> and we carried on. And then like five minutes later, the bait ball has now moved under our skiff and you, it's relatively shallow water. It's probably like 50 or 60 feet, but it's dark. It's Norway in winter. Um, so we hop in and I'm just kind of floating there. Uh, and I can see the, the bait ball vaguely down below. And then as I'm looking at it and I, well, I was just floating over it. I'm like, ah, oh, if something's going to happen, maybe it'll happen here. Cause I can see the fish and I can, you can hear the orcas clicking. You've got, I got one like really quick glimpse of them. Um, and as I'm looking at the bait ball, I'm like, Oh, that's, that's odd. It's getting clearer. Like there, and I can see the individual fish now. I'm like, oh, I wonder what, what that is about. And then all of a sudden they've gone from like 50 feet to 10 feet like and i haven't even noticed it all of a sudden they're just closer and as i'm looking i'm like oh, i wonder what, that's kind of odd and uh as i'm looking down the bait ball splits right below me and four humpbacks come out come up full lunge feeding directly below me three of them come all the way up and lunge feed right in front of my face and the fourth one came up and if i had my feet straight down my feet would have been in its mouth um and i should have sit, sat there and just hammered down on the shutter and taken pictures but all I wanted to do at the moment was get out of the way because I didn't, you know, it's a 45 foot animal and there's four of them coming at me full speed. Um, and it must have known I was there because it, it came up and bailed, closed its mouth and bailed right below my feet. Uh, so if I ever end up in that situation again, I will get the pictures because I know they know I'm there. <laughs> um, and it I'm, it probably would have spit me out, but it would have hurt. It probably would have hurt if, if I'd ended up in its mouth. Um, so... And then I, I sent the video or I, I told my friend about it because he was in Norway. He was on a different boat. He's like, oh, man, that's awesome. I want that to happen to me. And two days later, he sends me video of the same thing happening to him. So it must not be an infrequent occurrence. So I may have another shot at doing it again and actually getting pictures <laughs> if I ever go back. But I won't I won't bank on that. That's crazy. Um, and then the other that's one crazy. was also Vancouver Island uh, with the salmon run. You guys have seen salmon runs. You've done done all that um so you know what it's like with the bears and the eagles and all that kind of stuff all over the place and i'm on i'm underwater um and it's 
just another wall. You used to have a wall of fish going past you constantly. And I was, I did sat on one, in one spot in this little river in the middle of nowhere on Vancouver Island um, for four hours and just w- watched salmon go by. And, you know, initially they, when they first hop in, obviously they react, but fish aren't the smartest. So they forget pretty quickly that you're new in their environment. And after, you know, five minutes, they, you, you're just another object. Um, so they'd be, you know, over my head or in my face or under my arm. Uh, and it's some of the easiest photography, honestly, because they're so close, they're so close. And I like shooting slow shutter. So you can just slow the shutter speed down. You get the water, um, bubbles, it's turned to streaks. You get all sorts of weird artistic looking effects on the fish. Uh, and that's one of the things I like about slow shutter in general is because when you press the shutter, you're not quite sure what the final result's going to look like. Um, and you get some cool surprises sometimes. Um, and I have a, I argue that was arguably the most productive single day of photography I've ever had. Um, I'm still going through pictures from that day that I haven't looked at. Um, and then I came up and my friend was photographing or he was doing video. He's doing a project on the salmon in Vancouver. Uh, and he's, he's sitting up there and there's a, there's a couple of black bears out there fishing right down the river, not paying us any attention. There's ravens and eagles tearing the fish apart on the shoreline. Um, and it's, just one of those time, one of the few times where you can be completely surrounded by nature and not hear. There's no human. There's nothing human. There's no noises. There's no. There's no planes. There's no cars. There's no anything. Just he and I and all of this wild. Um, and you know, I'm sure you guys have experienced some of that in Alaska, but that seems very hard to find these days. So it was a. It was a privilege i think to have experienced that and hopefully i get to do it again but uh, not sure when i'll make it back to to vancouver but hopefully sooner rather than later and hopefully yeah, more, vancouver island hopefully is a pretty sandy. magical place that's where yeah. i saw my first orca actually oh really yeah i haven't seen any whale uh i've seen humpbacks out there oh yeah humpbacks obviously mm-hmm. no orcas out there yet but um, i would like to and alaska you can get away from people fairly easily, but you hardly ever get away from the sound of a bush pilot or bush plane. Mm, yeah. You know, they're, they're My, all over the place. Yeah. Even when we were in Alaska, when I was in Alaska, we were pretty remote, but it was, you know, you still have this, we were in this little lodge. You still have the sound of the lodge. I mean, you like, there weren't a ton of other people, but there's probably 10 or 12 other ones on the trip. So there's always people talking and blabbering and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it wasn't, it's spectacular and I would like to go back, but mm-hmm. it, it wasn't this quite the same experience as uh, Vancouver was for me. Um, but there's plenty of Alaska stuff that I still want to do. Like the, I'd like to do the sockeye up in Alaska. Oh yeah. Some sockeye grizzly, grizzly stuff. My, I'm not worried about uh, spilling the beans on this image because I'm sure I'm not the only one who's thought of it, but the whole uh, salmon underneath bear topside picture is something I would love to do. I just don't know how you do it without getting eaten. Um, or having your, and, even if you do remote and get your camera eat without getting your camera eaten. Yeah, exactly. I had a, I had a, I know a guy who was doing salmon in Vancouver and he happened to pop his head up and there was a black bear, right? Like literally right next to him fishing. And he like, he like slowly tried to turn and move the camera to get the shot. And right before he got it, the black bear noticed him and bolted. So I'm like, unless you 
unless you build a bear cage or something, which I'm sure, sure some somebody with no with all the time in the world in their hands is doing, um, or you get really lucky. I don't know how you get that picture without mm. getting you or your camera or both eaten. But yeah, that would be a toughie. And I know they've tried. If you watch some of the behind the scenes of like Planet Earth and Blue Planet and that kind of thing, I know they've tried several times to get it, but it's always remote and trying to figure out how to run cables into a housing and all that kind yeah. of thing, you know? That's why I think you'd have to do a bear cage and just put it out in like the flats in Lake Clark or something and try to get them close. But even then, I don't, you'd have to build such a big cage for them not to be able to like reach through. Right. And then how do you get close enough to get the picture without getting the cage in there? I don't know. There's, there must be a way to do it, but I don't have the brains or the motivation to do it right now somebody else will right um, but i the, the spirit bears would be cool too it's another thing i'd like to do up there that's but really that's probably number one on my list oh really mm -hmm. dang it's a that's a pricey one though it is not cheap <laughs> well now you have to put madagascar on your list so you guys can come shoot the chameleons and the geckos. there's actually a lot that i'd like to do in madagascar there you go. The lemurs, lemurs, the lemurs too. Exactly. Bush babies. Yeah. We, uh, there's a, a lemur sanctuary here in Florida uh, that does like, I don't know if they, I'm sure somebody knows, but I don't know if they like rescued these their pets or maybe the original ones were rescued or, or seized. Um, but they have like, you can go do lemur yoga with these lemurs. Um, and they fully, they, as soon as you get in there, they're like, if you don't want to do yoga, you can just play with the lemurs. So obviously that's what we did. Um, and I've always liked lemurs, but man, after doing that and getting to like hang out with them and they're sitting on your head or your back or whatever, I, I'm now I'm hooked and I'm so much looking forward to Madagascar for the lemurs now, as well as the, as all the lizards. But, um, they were just, we guys got to play with the little ringtails and they all have their own little personalities and they're so quirky and fun. Um, and their feet are really cool. These big mm -hmm. toe pads that I never really noticed before. Um, and we won't be in range for them in Madagascar, but like the injury and the black and whites and all those kind of things will be in range for. So looking forward to it. That sounds like an amazing trip. Yeah, for sure. I'm hoping. I have to keep in touch on that one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and another shameless plug just got set up today. Uh, the whale sharks and mantas at East of O'Harris next July, 2023. Okay. I will be talking to you about that trip. <laughs> there we go. hundred <laughs> percent. I've been there before, but we went, I was just there doing, doing more reptile stuff in like the mainland. And then we just did one day out for the whale sharks. Um, and it's kind of, kind of funny cause I show up with my, my big D4S housing and the big like 10 inch dome. I look like I know what I'm doing. Everybody else has never even been on a boat before. And we're on the way out and I'm sitting there all confident. And I'm one who gets seasick and spends the whole ride throwing up over the back of the boat. But then we got to see some whale sharks and that was a lot of fun. So now we'll have, our, that... we'll have our own private boat and we'll get to do because it. Because of the chumming or? No, so it's, it was just, I was chumming. We had a whole trail of tuna or something behind the boat, but. I'd made the mistake of being like, I'm fine. I don't get seasick. So I'd had a legit breakfast before I got on the boat after not having slept the night before. And then all of that breakfast came right back up and the fish got theirs and I didn't have anything left, but 
It was a for the audience before anybody gets bent out of shape. You don't chum whale sharks or filter feeders anyway. So. <laughs> Not on purpose, anyways. <laughs> but then, so, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, uh, but it was just a the whole day was was fun because then my my good friend he was with me and he tried to you obviously have to like they have you sit on the boat and then like kind of slide off in off off the side, and as he was trying to do that a wave came and pushed the boat the other way. So he back rolled into the boat and he was flopping around on the deck with his flippers in the air, not being able to up to right himself. So it was just a goofy day. And then we did get to see some whale sharks, which was really cool, but we were there a little bit early. So there were only a few mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people. So doing it right next time and own boat later in the season, we get away from all that. Uh, but I'm looking forward to them and I've never seen a manta. So, I keep I keep missing them. I keep coming up from dives too early. It's happened to me three times, so I, uh, that's a score I need to settle as well. Yeah, I'd like to see both. I was never big into whale sharks. I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I'd like to see one. And then when you see when you actually like see how big they are and they swim right underneath you, you get to see that spotted pattern on them. It's like, okay, these things are these things are mm-hmm. legit. Um, and now I would definitely looking forward to seeing them again because they're. Uh, yeah, I've seen some incredible whale shark images with a, you know, a lot of plankton in the water. So you get those rays with the sunlight coming in. Yeah. And man, it makes a crazy image. And the other potential, which I'm really looking forward to, is having the whale sharks and mantas in the same frame. Because in, later in the season uh, at Isla, the, the mantas all show up and they obviously are all filter feeding. Um, so, and I have a, I have a, friend who went a couple of years ago and he has a couple of shots with you know three or four whale sharks and four or five mantas in the frame wow uh, i'm like man just just you just need one good day out there and it could be mm-hmm. amazingly productive um but i was trying to see if we could tack on crocs to the in the snow taste to the back part of that trip but apparently they removed all the crocs for the safety of the tourists which is kind of lame but I get mm-hmm. it, but I'm a tourist and I would like to see Crocs. So I wish right. they had left them there, but you know, I'm probably in the minority of the people who go to Cancun. So just yeah. have to go a little further South what are you gonna do? and West. I would, I've thought about trying to do them at the, cause they live in at Flamingo and the Everglades down here that you always see the Crocs off the boat ramp. And uh, I've thought about trying to rig up a pole camera. I don't even, maybe I can't be saying this. I was trying to rig up a pole camera or something to try and see if I could, photograph them off the docks or something but i that then then becomes the issue of how do you fire it from outside the housing and all that kind of stuff which i'm sure there's some nerd out there who knows how to do that but i'm not that nerd (laughs) so clear seal you can what's that run any kind of cable in there with clear seals seal it up and just run the cable up to you you can use your remote release Duct tape, duct tape and that? clear seal. You can do anything. <laughs> uh, noted. I'll have to get. I have duct tape. I'll have to including those guys tape. in Alaska to put that airplane back together that the grizzly tore apart. A grizzly tore yeah. apart a plane, and they duct taped it back together and flew home. <laughs> no, I, no, I don't. I don't like flying to begin with, and the one time. And when skydiving is probably my least, like the thing that scares me the most. And the, to- the one time I went 
we were we, the plane they took us off uh, took us up in had, was like the wings were duct taped on they're duct taping stuff in between the runs and I'm like we're not even gonna get to skydive because we're gonna die before we get up there at least you had the parachute then, already you know, on <laughs> yeah 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 and then the, the little door wouldn't even close and I guess like, this, this sucks <laughs> and then once you get out the parachute finally opens you're like oh. <laughs> in my in my head I'm I'm as we're going down, I'm like looking for pools that I could potentially land in if something goes wrong, as if that would right. save me. Because if you hit a, if you hit a pool from eight thousand feet, it's going to hurt just as much. Well, it won't hurt. You'll you'll be as dead as you would if you hit the normal ground. <laughs> but it's like psychologically, I kept telling myself that the pool would be better to just land. Don't in look there. up and see the duct tape flapping field. off the patch that they. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I didn't look up at all. So I was like, I'm looking. I'm just looking down, and that that moment from when he pulled the cord to when you feel the catch uh it was the longest like three seconds of my life because you're just uh, open 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 but then it was great (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but then it was great as soon as we got down i'm like let's do that again and now if i now if the opportunity came up i'd be like "Hmm, it's been too long yeah Yeah, the the adrenaline (laughs) has worn off i'd have spend too much time psyching myself up again to get back up there you know what's funny it's probably two things a they probably put that duct tape and stuff all the plane as a joke to mess with you guys and b why would you ever want to jump out of a perfectly good plane you know <laughs> that's what i'm saying what i'm saying but my girlfriend's all about it she likes bungee jumping she likes skydiving oh, and i'm like i like the stuff where i'm like i don't mind heights but i like the stuff where you stay on the right. ground like i don't want planes don't want bungees. Like, just let me stay. She there. needs to watch some more videos where the bungees break and things like that. <laughs> I don't know. I honestly don't know if that would deter. Her. <laughs> I honestly don't know. Uh, I keep her distracted with sharks and frogfish and snakes and yeah. stuff for the most part. So we get to do the the underwater and on land stuff. Speaking nice. of frogfish. But, we haven't really covered it, and it's yes. a huge part of your portfolio, and the variety is <laughs> insane. I know we're we're kind of getting long here, but tell us a little bit about your love of the frogfish. Well, we're about to double the length of this podcast if we're really <laughs> going to get into the frogfish. Cause we might have to have you back time. on. Um, but. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, so they've fascinated me for ever um and i the first one i ever saw was on that first i think it was on my first dive trip to bonaire and i can still picture it because i we had to, we had made sure we told the dive master and i think it was i think i was 10 we told the dive master like all we want to see is a frogfish um and she made it happen we found this little tiny yellow one sitting on a sponge uh, i have i still have the picture on uh my computer i recently refound it and it's awful but you can see that you can see the frogfish it's i can i can be back in that moment um and then from there on i was hooked we saw a few more in bonaire um then we went to we did a few trips to a place called saint vincent which is in the eastern caribbean um that's very well known for frogfish and we never had great frogfish luck there but it, we saw some um and then a few years ago I got to do uh, go to Lembe in Indonesia, which is probably the best place on earth for frogfish. Um, and we pro- we saw 50 or 60 over the course of 10 days and seven or eight different species. Um, so I, I 
kick myself looking back on that because, you know, uh, uh, we were seeing so many that you stopped taking pictures of them all. And, you know, that's cause at the time you're like, ugh, another frogfish. Um, and now I think back, I'm like, damn, there were so many good ones that I just, I was just too lazy to photograph. So now every frogfish I see, I photograph. Um, and the dive site we live close to uh, has, it has five different species, six different species, five. Um, but the common one is the striated. Uh, and most of the ones on my Instagram feed recently are actually all the same species, even though they all look different. Um, and the, the other day we did a dive and we saw five, we saw two were pitch black, two were kind of the fuzzy, hairy, brown and stripes. And then one is bright orange. Um, and they're just, they, they're, I don't know what it is about them. I think they're just, they're weird. And I like the weird stuff. They're also kind of cute. Um, and they're, they're just, they're just goofy. They have these hand like feet. They, they don't swim. They kind of waddle, they walk, they'll grip they'll grip things as they kind of position themselves. Uh, they have the lure, which is cool. They just stick the lure out and dangle it and wave it around. Um, and every frogfish species, the lure is shaped differently. So some species don't have any lure. Some like the striateds have this long wormy, uh, it either has like two, two worms on it. Some have three, uh, and they'll just cast around and wiggle it out in the, out in the, uh, out in front of their face. And then they, they have the, I believe the fastest, um, feeding strike of any animal on earth. So it's like six, one thousandth of a second or something like that. You can't actually see it happen. You'll just see something in front of their face and then it's gone. Um, unless it's too big to get down in one bite, then they'll take a couple, but they eat everything alive and they can eat things that are bigger than themselves. So sometimes you'll see one with a uh, lump in its belly and it can't even, like we found a little one the other day and it, it actually was having trouble like walking because its belly was so big so it just kind of like tilt back and forth um it couldn't really keep itself upright uh and i have i've seen videos of them where they'll eat like a, a whole lionfish or something and you can see the lionfish moving in its belly because they don't they because uh, it's still alive and then it just slowly dissolves i guess um and they're cannibalistic anything that's cannibalistic i find interesting um Does your girlfriend so know this will often Similar to praying mantis. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Sorry, I threw that thought uh, way off. They're similar to Ruby. <laughs> Ruby, yeah. <laughs> no, no, <we're laughs> the the are similar to, to praying mantises, where they'll mate and then the female eats the male. So if you ever see them like the male together, he's never or with the female, he's never anywhere near her mouth. So he'll stay towards her tail they'll mate and he's gone. Like he does not hang around. Um, unfortunately, one, one male that we were watching last fall had a very big girlfriend and he, we could always find him in the same spot. And then all of a sudden he was gone and she showed up with this misshapen big lump in her belly and we never saw the male again. So my, my assumption is she ate him. Um, so <laughs> RIP to that little guy. But uh, the... The females, the females get significantly bigger, um, and the like. At least in the species we have here, the striated, the common one, um, they the males get hairier. So that's usually how you can tell them sexes apart if they're not together. Is the females just they're just big, um, and the males are have more things coming off them. Um, but the 
it's funny because striated frogfish anywhere else in their range in the Atlantic are usually the rarest species. And for whatever reason right here, they're the most common. Um, and I think we get five others. Um, there's, uh, but the striateds are outnumber the rest of them, like 50 to one. Um, and you know, some of them will only be seen once a year, some species, and then others, I mean, there's a couple species that haven't been seen here in forever. So I don't know if they're the ones that are seen are just flukes, um, or if nobody really pays attention to look for them because they don't know that they're here. Um, but I would, the sargassum fish is another one. They'll, they'll come in when the sargassum starts floating in, you just go peel through all the sargassum and find, find them looking forward to doing that. Um, and then the other relatively common species is dwarf, which max out of maybe an, uh, if you see one that's an inch long, it's enormous. Um, and those are only the females. The males usually max out at a, about a quarter inch. Uh, so they're, they're uh, not the eat and they all rely on camouflage, obviously. So, you know, the hairies look like clumps of algae, but the dwarfs look like little shells and the whole dive site is pieces of shell. So unless you see one moving or it's in the grass instead of the shelly area, there's almost no shot of finding one. Um, we've seen a couple recently, but that's because they were all in the grass and they, they're white usually. So they stood out. Um, and then the striateds can be any color, but like there, you can see them here. You don't even have to dive. The three of the ones we found the other day were in less than four feet of water. Um, just kind of sit sitting in holes or waddling along the bottom. Um, but yeah, I, I could ramble forever about frogfish. They're the coolest. They're the coolest thing. I, yeah. Yeah. I, it's, they, well, they it's obvious so why when you look at your Instagram page and just your portfolio, <laughs> they're just so unique to anything else that yeah we have the batfish here too which are another type of anglerfish and i like them almost as much uh, but the coolest thing about batfish they have a lure also under their nose but their lure isn't visual like the frogfish they dangle it out and they move it around to mimic prey the batfish is that which i learned recently is actually chemical so they just kind of like doink it out from underneath their nose and waft the whatever chemical it is into the water and just let stuff come to them um and then unlike the frogfish, the batfish are, have this like droopy, like miniature elephant <laughs> trunk mouth. It's like a little boop when they, when they eat something. Um, and it, it, that's not big. Like the frogfish mouth expands like eight times its size or something like that. And the batfish just kind of slurp things up, um, which we saw happen recently, which was kind of cool. Um, cause I'd never seen one eat before. Uh, and you can actually watch it. unlike the frogfish, which just inhale and, just there's just a cloud of dust and nothing else but they are i'm hoping to catch some frogfish mating here in the next month or so because it's about that time um so if i could get a nice shot of like five males around a female which somebody got last year i'd be pretty happy right I was and then she'd say, have all sorts of snacks yeah. to eat on afterward because <laughs> she's got she's got five to choose from <laughs> Whoever the sl whoever the slowest <laughs> and dumbest is, she'll be like full enough that you can photograph her pairs. daily. Just don't be last. The, uh, and that's the other nice thing. It's like they don't move, or they you know if they do move, they don't move very far. So they're one of those subjects you can revisit again and again and again. Because, um, but you know, the problem is they don't they're well camouflaged, so they don't have to move that far for you to not be able to find them again. <laughs> Which has happened. We're all you know swimming a circle where I know this thing is, I can't find it. And when you finally do, it's only moved like a foot. 
but it just happened to be happened to shift position enough or be half covered by something that you can't see them. And but uh, yeah. Anyway, I started rambling about frogfish because I could keep going on and on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> I told you it was going to be a while. Yeah, you I did. Think I, I think I killed it to like eleven minutes or something like that, which isn't bad. That's really interesting, and your your portfolio is awesome, man. I love the variety. I love the underwater stuff's incredible. The colors, the yeah, I mean, you can tell you're you're passionate about it, and um, it's it's fun to go check out your profile for sure. Um, and where where can people find you at so they can see your stuff? Yeah. Sorry. Um. So my my Instagram's formerly homeless photographer, um, and then my website is nine miles north.com the number nine miles north.com um i i have a lot more on my website but instagram i probably update more regularly um so i would pay you know you could pay attention to both but instagram's probably the the best spot or the most frequently used spot and if if they're um, if anybody's interested in those tours you mentioned are they going to find those on your website i'm assuming yeah so i'll have the links to those ready um, or if they go to natural selection tours, um, there's, I don't, I'm not the only guide for them. So they have a bunch of different, different trips and stuff. Um, but Madagascar and the whale sharks are the ones that I'm doing next year. And there'll probably be some other ones work in the works for 2024 and beyond, but, um, we will put links to the Madagascar trip, but the whale shark trip, I'm going to make sure that there's a spot for me. So we're not going to post that one. <laughs> Fair enough. What whale shark yeah. trip? He Did he even mention that? that from the podcast? Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't know yeah. yeah, no, no, no whale shark trip. Well, thanks very much for your time. We greatly appreciate it, and it was a unique conversation. It's obviously subjects we cover all the Rocky Mountain species and the large ungulates and that kind of thing, but rarely do we get to talk to somebody that's photographing frogfish especially the quality of images that you're getting and and the uh, the herbs as well well i appreciate you guys having me you've been listening to the wild and exposed podcast if you haven't yet please give us a rating and a review and make sure you're subscribed so that you'll get every episode we produce as soon as we drop it and as always thanks for tuning in we're gonna make it someday Nothing's gonna get in our way